Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a super cool guest that I wanted to speak to for a long time. Uh, His name is uh, Emeritus Professor John Lennox. Uh, He was at University of Oxford. He's an Emeritus Fellow in Mathematics and Philosophy of Science. We're going to talk about his numerous books and his work in what's called Christian Apologetics. When I first heard of apologetics, I thought it was apologizing for being a Christian. And I thought, what? why would you call it apologetics? But we'll get into that. So John uh, usually speaks to huge rooms of students. He's over in England and probably because of travel and restrictions that maybe he can't do that. So I'm, I'm very thankful that he is here to speak to uh, you, the listeners today. So John, thank you so much for coming. It's my pleasure to, to be with you um, to discuss these things. Uh, travel is very difficult at the moment, and uh, in particular because of my age and health, it's very difficult to get medical insurance. But I, I'm pretty well locked down, vaccinated, locked down, and very right. active over here and on Zoom. Yeah, my my first question for you is, um, when did you come to faith? How long has it been? A very long time. I presume you mean faith in God. Yes. Everybody comes to faith in something, and I spend a lot of time tried to get across to people that everybody's a believer in something. Hmm. And I talked to atheists and when they came to faith. So if you mean faith in Christianity, a Hmm. very long time ago, probably 70 years ago, my parents were very keen Christians in Northern Ireland, which is not always the best start for a Christian background. Dad was very remarkable, and and indeed so was my mother, because although they were keen Christians, they didn't push it down my throat. They encouraged me to think. They lived Christianity in front of me, very impressively, in fact. And that might interest you, because Northern Ireland has a reputation for religious tension, as you know, and violence. And I grew up in the midst of it. 
But my father insisted, at great risk, on employing people from both sides, Catholics and Protestants. And I said, why do you do this? He said, because I believe the statement in the beginning of Genesis that all men and women, irrespective of what they believe, are made in the image of God. And I'm going to treat them that way, that way. And that left a deep impression on me because he was bond for that. And uh, my brother nearly lost his life. Right. So my parents left me with a deep impression. One, Christianity works in their lives. Two, they would love me to come to faith, even as a boy, but they weren't going to pressurize me. And that that was interesting, too, because they encouraged me to read about other worldviews. I mean, can you imagine a kid at 12, 13 being handed a copy of the Communist Manifesto? By well, today, it's, it's, it's happening. It's happening for bad reasons, but your parents did it for a good reason. Yes, they did. So that's my kind of background. And, and therefore, Christianity, to me, began as something intellectually open-ended, stimulating, and I've never had cause to change my mind on that. Do you remember, was it a moment? Was it a series of weeks or a day when literally oh, that, you, that, that's, you... That's so hard to say, you know. Okay. When you're looking back, especially from this age, I'm nearly 80, I'm 78. I might as well be honest with your audience who can't see me. It, it's difficult to remember because seeing this lived in my parents, I very rapidly came to believe that it was true. It wasn't simply that it helped my parents. It was true. And I was a voracious reader. I was interested in all kinds of things from a very early age. And very rapidly uh, in my mid-teens or even early teens, I came across what's now called the science-religion debate. And I learned that the great pioneers like Galileo, Kepler, Newton, and so on, were believers in God. Indeed, many of them Christian. And that really inspired me because I later became a mathematician. I saw a deep harmony between the idea of a creator God and exploring the world scientifically. So that came together for me at a very early stage indeed. Okay, makes sense. So you've been... I mean, how long have you been doing apologetics? Was this an internal faith for you for years? And then when did it start to go outwards and you started laughing, to talk to other people? I'm laughing because when you first used the word apologetics, you said that it sounded like Christians apologizing. I don't like the word at all for that reason. But for another reason, apologetics is not an English word. It's a Greek word and it's it's... It's been taken straight from Greek, where the word is apologia, and put into English. And people think it's sort of philosophy 101 for bright Christians, when in fact apologia seems, it simply means defense. And making an apologia means you make a defense. So I've been involved, let me put it this way, in the intellectual defense of Christianity since boyhood. And of course, Paul uses the word in the New Testament more than anyone else, and his being apologia was not an answer to a deep philosophical question posed by Plato. It was his experience of the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. So I'm afraid people have got a very wrong idea. And so I don't like the word apologetics for that reason. You've interacted with probably tens of thousands of different people, you know, in your lectures. What have you noticed over the years? How have people change in their conception of faith and your interaction with them? 
that actually is a perceptive question because what has happened, I think, is that there is a huge confusion has entered the discussion as to what faith actually is to start with. Because Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens, with whom I interacted directly, as you know, they spread about the idea that faith is a sort of Mark Twain thing, you know, what what you know ain't true, believing what you know ain't true. And their idea is that faith is a religious word and it means believing where there's no evidence. Now, they're, they're wrong in that, just wrong. That's what most of us call blind faith. Faith is a perfectly sensible everyday word, comes from the Latin fides, from which we get fidelity. It means trust. And of course, it's only worth talking about if it's based on evidence. We don't trust people for no reason. We don't trust books and newspapers for no reason. And so I meet a lot of confusion, even in the academic world. So they meet someone like me. They say, oh, Lennox, I feel sorry for you. You're a man of faith. That means you believe without evidence. So there's no purpose in talking to you. And I want to set the record straight and say that is a very clever intellectual cop-out. Well, it's not very intellectual, but it's a cop-out. And it stops you from considering the evidence. I'm a scientist. And what does that mean? It means I've got faith that science can be done. Einstein once said, I can't imagine a proper scientist without that faith. He didn't mean faith in God. He meant faith in the, let's say, the rational intelligibility of the universe. And you've got to believe in that to be a science. That's a scientist. That is your faith. And I want to point out that my Christian faith is every bit as evidence-based as Einstein's faith in the doability of science. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, this goes back to what you were explaining earlier. So, okay. Um, but what have you seen in the students that you interact with? So is there more confusion? Has the confusion changed? Like what, what would you say again, um, you're experiencing so many years later versus maybe decades ago when you would speak yeah, to students? I think, by the way, the confusion is more among professors than students. <laughs> I find students, this is a very interesting thing. I'm constantly told that we live in a relativistic postmodern world. And I take the point that there's a lot of relativism out there. But if you look at it carefully, you find it is very rarely relativism in things that matter. I've never met a relativistic person in relation to what's in their bank account, for example. In other words, people tend to be postmodern in things that don't really matter. Now, what I find among students is that there has been and still is an increasing interest in the whole business of the question, and I put it in the title of my first book in this area, Has Science Buried God? Uh, what is the 
relationship between faith in God and science, and then particularly between Christianity and science. Now, what I've noticed in more recent years is that a couple of other major areas have come into play with students. The first one of those is the problem of suffering. And they will say, look, okay, you believe as a scientist, there's evidence that there's a God behind the universe. Okay, but how do you go about discussing the mess we're in? The second question, and it's related to that one to a certain extent, is where can we find meaning for life in the sheer complexity of our pandemic-ridden world? Which is why I wrote a book about the pandemic, incidentally. And I find students are very much, and I've done a lot of speaking to a large number of students on Zoom in the past two years. And I suppose probably the majority of questions have been on the questions of suffering and questions of meaning. Makes sense. Are students coming up with any questions that, uh, again, tell you that the world has gotten more difficult to live in or more confusing oh, yes. to live in? Oh, I, I think I, I think that is inevitably true because what students have to face nowadays compared with what I had to face as a student in the 1960s is it's a much more difficult world because there's a lot more, let's say, a loss of a moral base for a start. People are unsure what values are. There's a lot more damage from experience of broken homes, broken relationships, and all that kind of thing. I mean, I grew up in a country where murder was almost unheard of, if you see what I mean. And where crime was, you could go out and play and you didn't have to worry about predators or anything like that. And the world has changed absolutely massively. Now, I've got 10 grandchildren, so they keep me up to date with this kind of thing. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That's great. What What do you, I, yeah, I hope this is not a, a, well, it might be a question that'll make you laugh. What What would you guess or what do you think God sees now when he looks at the world versus years ago? Do you think that we're, I mean, some people are saying we're headed for the end of days, things like that. I mean, what's your perception? Is it just things are moving along as they need to move along or what's your thought there? I find it's very hard to second guess what God thinks. But I'm always leery of doom mongers. You know, if you and I had been living in the first century under Nero and we'd been having this conversation, you might have asked me the same question. And it's now nearly 20 centuries beyond Nero. I, I think it's clear that history goes up and down. And in many ways, for many people, their standard of living is much higher now than it was. But I'm I'm well aware that I've just been watched the news before chatting to you that one in six people in the United Kingdom are below the poverty line. So there's a great deal of poverty. But in those days, we weren't worried about climate change, for example, or pandemics. And I noticed that young people it's very high on their priority list, the concern about climate change and global warming and this kind of thing. You know, I realized the same thing, like you said, about living in the time of Nero. I thought, what if it was 1939 and we were in yes, Europe? Exactly, exactly. We wouldn't know the next six years would be terrible. And no. so what, what do you think? Again, I know it's hard to speculate on what God sees and thinks, but 
What do you think he saw of the world during those really terrible times? What do you think he saw of it when things are better? And what do you think he sees now? What, what would be your guess? It's very hard to say. One of the interesting, just a statistic that floods into my head as you ask the question is the effect of the pandemic on virtual church attendance in this country is huge. Very few people going physically to church. The churches were closed, but people very interested in whether we got anything sensible to say from a Christian perspective on the pandemic. And, you know, I think that as we look at events like this, however you sort them out, and they raise deep and quite frankly insoluble problems there are no simplistic answers but they remind us of our vulnerability and our our mortality and therefore they will get think people thinking c.s lewis once said that pain is god's megaphone he shouts at us to in a sense wake us up to the reality of our temporariness on this planet and therefore to get get us to think about eternal realities and certainly the response to my little coronavirus book was beyond all expectation. It's in over 30 languages now. It's a short book. And I wasn't attempting simplistic answers. I was simply saying, look, here, here's the way different worldviews look at this. And here, for what it's worth, is what Christianity has to say. Think about it and make up your own mind. And that's my whole attitude to these things. Yeah, I went uh, through your book, uh, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? Oh, you what, did, right. Yeah, what what was the response? What are some of the interesting things that jump out at you? Well, I'm constantly still being interviewed about it. And what people generally want to know is they want to unpack more detail because it was deliberately kept short. And uh, therefore, many of the issues in there, you can tease them out and they've got nuances and, and, and so on. But the general response was enormously favorable. And people who were suffering directly, and you remember in that book, I talk about the two perspectives on suffering, one of the person who's going through it or the other of the person who's watching. I found people were writing to me who were going through it. And they were thanking me that this has opened a window that they'd never seen before. Now, of course, what they do with that window, whether they look through it or go through the door, is entirely up to them. But it encourages me that people perceive that actually Christianity is not as trivial as many people believe, but it offers not an answer, but it offers a window into an answer, it seems to me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I I know from my experience in listening to your lectures and listening to you, it's always a message of hope, which makes me feel better. Yes. It sounds like that coronavirus book for a lot of people was, again, another big message of hope. So that's great. Correct. Um, what, are, what are some things that you still have yet to write about? In the midst, I, I'm always in the midst of writing. Uh, you probably know I've written a book on artificial intelligence last year, 2084. That's right. That yeah. has created a, a stir way beyond anything I would have imagined. I've even ended up speaking to major corporations on the topic and so on. Apparently because I use it to raise the big questions rather than just talking about the latest technology. Uh, And that, of course, has interested me. And what I'm trying to do is to 
update that on the run. In other words, I don't want to, in five years' time, if I'm still here, to be asked by the publisher, we'd love an update on this. Because the scene is changing so rapidly, I'm trying to keep up with it. That's the first thing. The second thing is that I was asked recently to do a very short lecture, public lecture, on mathematics and its relevance to the God question. Oh, nice. The response that was terrific. I, I gave the lecture in Coventry Cathedral of all places, and alongside me was Paul Davis, the famous astrophysicist from ASU. And um, as a result of that, I thought, you know, this might make a little book. So I'm writing on that. The other thing that interests me is the whole concept of the significance of work from a Christian perspective. There is a number of books on that, but it seems to me that a lot of the questions I've gone around talking to people that deserve a biblical answer. And my passion from very young, and I had a brilliant mentor from the age of about 18 onwards uh, for the following 60 years nearly, is to credibly deal with showing people that the Bible is not as unintelligent as some of them make it, but actually has more to say than the great philosophies of the world. That's why I've written books on two major biblical characters. Uh, I've written a book on Daniel because the ancient Babylonian empire in its culture resembles in many ways 21st century culture and academia today. I've written a book on Joseph, and now I'm writing the hardest book of all, and that is a book on Abraham. Very good. What do you think the Bible would look like if it was written today? I know that's probably a really weird question, but just what's your sense of what it would be like versus what it is? Well, I'm being very <laughs> careful. I'm not saying it's not a good question. I think it is actually a good question because it it forces me to think. That's why I love questions. I, I try to copy Socrates, you know, and ask questions. He's my great uh, intellectual hero. And I, I've often put that question to myself in a different way. Why was the Bible written at the times in which it was done? Because my first comment to you would be, the Bible was not written at one point in time. It covers many centuries. And that's a very interesting thing. We've one book, which is a collection of books. It's, it's actually a library, but none of it has been written recently. And it itself comments that the, well, Christ said to his disciples, the Holy Spirit would come and lead them, that is the early apostles, into all the truth. And the book of Revelation appears to have been the last in, in that sequence. So your question raises in me the interesting issue. Why wasn't that continuous? Why, why didn't we have a 20th century writer adding to it? And of course, I've no simple answer to that, but it, it seems to me my conviction is, because I spent my life thinking about Scripture, is God has given us all we need. He's given us a great span of history, and the New Testament in particular does say things very carefully uh, about the future and gives us, to use the word that you emphasize, and I'm glad you spotted that, gives us real hope, in particular in terms of the resurrection of Jesus in the past, and the fact that he will return and he will raise all those who trust him 
in the, in the future. And that is for me a, a real hope. And I believe it as a scientist. I think it's uh, an evidence-based hope. It's not a pie in the sky when we die type hope. Yeah. I recently thought I was thinking, well, you know, why was the Bible not added to again in so many hundreds of years? And then I thought, well, maybe miracles and near-death experiences and answers to prayer and things like that are an extension of the Bible and it's still being made well, today. It's still coming out today. Let's examine that. I, I think that's a good contribution to the discussion. In other words, the Bible is in that sense complete for what we need, but its effect hasn't stopped. And because I have a scientific background, I'm asked a great deal by young people, how can you believe in miracles as a scientist? And of course, having listened to C.S. Lewis many years ago personally, and devoured his books as a teenager. I've been very influenced by him. And one of the things he says in one of his books is, is I find absolutely superb. And that is that human ability to think and understand is an evidence that our rationality is supernatural. In other words, you don't have to start with miracles in the sense of the resurrection and Christ turning water into wine and so on to get to the supernatural. But the any conversion that's genuine of a person who comes to trust Christ and find their life transformed, that to my mind is powerful contemporary example of the supernatural. And it happens again and again. If I hadn't seen it happen again and again in the lives of other people, I'd be very skeptical about Christianity. I mean, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And Christ makes very strong claims that if people trust him and receive him as Lord and Savior, they receive new life, new power, new desires, new ability to fight the mess they've made of their own lives and the lives of others. And when you see that actually happen, you say, right, two plus two equals four. And it's convincing, very convincing. Whenever I hear you speak, you say, God, 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 God. Some people I've seen, they say Jesus all the time. And a few people have said Holy Spirit a lot. Why do you think some people only say God and some people seem to only say Jesus? And maybe if well, you say only hear Holy Spirit. I hadn't noticed that in myself. I suppose one of the things in this is that there seem to me to be steps in where people are coming from. And the first step is to come to believe there is a God. The next step is to come to believe that God became human. The Holy Spirit is yet a third step. And many people find the whole concept of the Holy Spirit very confusing and difficult. God is complicated. So I suppose because I interact such a great deal with people who are not Christians, I, I will start with God, but certainly I make it a very strong point to land on the specifically Christian concept of God and Christ being God. Indeed, I don't know whether you've come across my film with Kevin Sorbo, have you? Oh, no. What is it called? Against the Tide. You know who Kevin Sorbo is, I can imagine, the Hercules and Andromeda. Well, a physicist friend of mine had the idea, an American friend, of doing a documentary film. It's just come out, and it's got a website, againstthetidemovie.com or something like that. Okay, great. And the idea is that 
I don't know whether you remember a film called God's Not Dead. Yes, I remember, yeah. Well, Sorbo was the atheist teacher in that, and he was confronted by a student. And the student used my arguments explicitly and mentioned me by name, you see, in that film, which I didn't know about, by the way. But the whole idea of our film, Against the Tide, is that Sorbo, now in his normal life, the film's finished, he starts to wonder who this person is who uh, used these arguments to challenge the atheist teacher and apparently brought him down and all that. So he comes to Oxford and we spend time where he asks the big questions about God and science. And then he comes to a point in the film where he said, but look, this is all very well, but you're Christian. How do you make the step from God and science and believing in God and believing that Jesus was the son of God? And I say to him, well, Kevin, the best way to answer that is to go to where it all started. So we go to Israel. And the second part of the film is filmed in Israel and deals with exactly that. The whole specifically Christian historical side. Because you see, God and science is not a matter so much of history and experience as of science. Whereas the convictions about Christ are partly historical and partly experiential and psychological. And so that's how we move on to that. So I take your point completely. Okay. When you've been doing mathematics, what was your reflection back on your faith? You know, you're heavily deep into pure mathematics. You're doing equations, writing papers. What was your reflection on the faith component of it as you did it? Well, you only do mathematics if you believe that mathematics can be done. And really the intersection between mathematics and my faith in God comes at the meta level, as we call it. In other words, the very fact that mathematics is so phenomenally effective, we can land a person on the moon on the basis of Newton's equations on their own. In fact, one single equation, which is just spectacular. It's only got eight symbols or nine symbols in it. And here we are landing people on the moon. And this has led some of the greatest minds in history long before me to ask the question, why is mathematics so effective? Now, that fascinated me from the age of about 18 or 19. Why is it so effective? Why does it work? And of course, I believe the atheists have no answer to that. And they talk, and Wigner, Eugene Wigner, Nobel Prize winner and an atheist, he wrote a famous paper in 1961 talking about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. But I think it's reasonable. It's unreasonable from an atheist perspective, but it's totally reasonable from a biblical perspective for the following obvious reason. And that is that the universe was made by God, the universe out there, and God made the human mind that studies the universe. And therefore that fit between the mathematics that we think up or we think we think up it may be partially discovered and partially invented. I think God has made us creative, fits the universe out there. And that's one of the real evidences to me that atheism is false. You see, I, of course, I believe in God and Christ because I'm a Christian, but I also believe in God because I'm a mathematician. Years ago, I remember seeing an astronomer talking about how studying the universe and the stars bolstered his faith. And my myself personally, in studying biology and evolution, I look at it, it's so unbelie unbelievably complex and amazing that 
it's pushing me in that direction. I just, I, it, it's crazy how organisms could be unbelievably complex and yet exist. Who could have created that? It's it amazing. Well, that, that is something that fascinates me even more. And in fact, what you've just mentioned has been part of my motivation for writing the book Cosmic Chemistry. You see, my book, God's Undertaker, was written about 14 years ago. And I realized over time that there have been huge developments. Now, I'm not a biologist, but I'm actually very interested in it. And I attended the systems biology seminars of the world-famous Dennis Noble. And nice guy. He, he put me on to the third wave in biology. And this is the whole question of top-down causation and turning on its head many of the paradigms that have been accepted for years and years. And I thought, this is so exciting. I want to try to describe this fairly. And Perry Marshall has also been a bit of a pioneer in this. So I yeah. I wrote to him when I discovered he was interested and he was kind enough to endorse my book. So my book is really trying to quantify what you've just said, that w when you look at what's happening, for example, in, in the cell, it's levels of complexity, the way in which information is stored and processed. It is utterly mind-boggling, but it's mind-boggling and points in a particular direction. And that is that there is so much top-down causation within a cell. It leads to seriously asking the question, is the whole thing a result of top-down causation? In other words, whatever material processes are involved, and there are certainly very many, is there the mind of God involved? And that's what yeah. I want to make more plausible, if yeah. you will allow me a modest motivation for writing this book. Yeah, I've wondered, where is the life in a cell? If you would have, you know, it's yes, not nice, but if you would have taken it apart. Cell? If you yes. take it apart piece by piece, where is it dead and where is it alive? Like in you and me and every person, where is the life in our body? Is it here? Is it here? Is it, where is it? It's weird. Well, we it's don't just know what it is. Point. We don't know what it is. Yeah. And yeah. here we are talking and we're both conscious and we know we're conscious. And I know you're there. You know, I'm there. And we haven't the slightest notion what consciousness is. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it's <true>. staggering. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Going back a little bit to math. I remember uh, there's a famous mathematician, Paul Erdős. Oh, and... I knew him. Oh, really? Oh, very cool. Yes, but I... I met Erdős. Yeah, he was fantastic. Yes, go on. Well, I, I think a quote he said, I may get it wrong, but he said every time he discovers something new in math, he's uh, revealing another page in God's book yeah, of it's in the explanation. Book. Yeah, it's in so the I thought book. that was really cool. Erdős is amazing. He used to travel around the world and he would arrive at somebody's door, a mathematician's door, and he would knock the door and he would say, my mind is open. And he was always invited in because the mathematician knew that before morning, they'd have a joint paper. Have you heard of the idea of an Erdős number? Yeah, the lower it is, the more closely you've worked with him. I guess if yes, you my write Erdős a paper number with... is two. Oh, nice. In other words, I've written a joint paper with a person who's written a paper with Erdős. I okay. haven't written with one himself, in which case it would be one, but it's two. So I haven't done too badly. Yeah, that's very cool. Have you met quite a lot of um, scientists that also have faith? And oh, that's what drives yeah. their inquiry? Faith in God? Oh, yes. Uh, it's quite remarkable. Here in Oxford, in the science faculties, there's, there's quite a number of very prominent, high-powered 
scientists, particularly physicists um, and electrical engineers who are fellows of the Royal Society and who believe in God. I have uh, all through my life. Of course, I've met the opposite, those who don't believe in God. And generally speaking, we get along very well because they're very open to discussion, which I like. Yeah, that's good. Do you see the climate, at least in Oxford or around the world, is becoming more supportive of faith or less supportive or it's just a patchwork? That's very difficult to measure. That's very difficult to measure. I, I hear of some incidences where people in some parts of the world get discriminated against and um, because of their faith in God and so on. Personally, I may have experienced a bit of that, but it's it's so little, I, I, I wouldn't even mention it. But I have met one or two people, very prominent scientists, who have faced vicious discrimination because of their faith in God. And it seems totally irrational. I mean, universities ought to be places where people can freely speak so long as they're not being offensive. And what really concerns me today is this rise of attitudes where you can be no platform for almost any reason where students can say, we don't want this person speaking and so on. It seems to me that it contradicts the very fundamental idea of a university where all ideas ought to be explorable. Uh, That's very sad, but I'm glad that the University of Oxford, their vice chancellor, has taken a very strong line against this kind of attitude. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Um, Just have a couple more questions. This one, totally different, totally different angle. I was thinking a while back, you know, let's say there's a billion Christians and they believe what they believe. And at the same time, there's a a billion Muslims. And I'm sure within the Muslim population, there's plenty of good people, people that really believe strongly what they believe. Why would they be wrong and the Christians be right? And why would this be... Why would they simultaneously exist in in our world? Yes. Well, wrong about what and right about what? And I think you put your finger on something very important. Now, this is a huge subject. And I'm going to try and keep this very short because we need another uh, sector to really discuss it. But the bottom line for me is this. You said there are many good people out there. There sure are. And it's not only that, but... My Muslim friends or my Hindu friends or my friends who are uh, atheists could put Christians to shame in their moral behavior. Because as I look at people, I think C.S. Lewis was right when he says, if you investigate any culture at all, any religion, any philosophy, you'll find, for example, the golden rule you'll find common moral values. And that's one of the reasons society doesn't completely collapse. There are good people out there. And in that sense, you don't, of course, have to believe in God to be good. From where I sit, there's an answer why that is so, that each man and woman, this is where we started, as my father taught me, is made in the image of God and we're all moral beings. That's the first thing. So when you say they're right or wrong, I want to qualify that and say about what? They may not be wrong in their moral feelings. They may be better than many a professing Christian. But the question of relationship with God 
you will find the obvious thing that not all religions agree with each other. Leave Christianity out of it. My Muslim friends will never agree with Hindus about hundreds of millions of gods, for example. And what I discover is this, that provided we clear the playing field in the sense that I'm talking to friends from a different religion, but I'm not looking down on them. I'm not criticizing their morality or their goodness. Then we can talk openly about the obvious differences between how we conceive of relationship with God. And I'll just make one general remark, but I think this has to be settled on the basis of evidence. I I know no other way to settle it. For instance, let's take a historical thing. My Jewish friends, and I've got many of those, my Jewish friends believe that Jesus died. My Muslim friends believe that he never died, but he was taken straight to heaven. I believe he died and rose again. Those three things are mutually exclusive. Okay, now how would you answer the question? Well, it seems to be only on the basis of evidence, and so we must be persuaded. And I remember once mentioning this in public where a Muslim actually had asked me the question about the differences, and I mentioned this, and he said, you're dead right. Absolutely right. We do disagree about this. And so then we can discuss. But I find you can only carry on a discussion like that if the person you're talking to really realizes that you seriously do mean that you respect their moral position. If that makes sense to you. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Do you think that God is saying some people need to experience me in this way? Some people need to experience me in this other way. I'm going to be there for people in whatever form they need me. Do you think that may be a reason for these different faiths? And maybe they're all right. I don't know. Well, again, you're raising a a very deep question because the different groupings are, there are to a certain extent variations on the theme. I mean, just look at the professing Christian church. And I prefer to look at that question a different way altogether. And that is that, It seems to me religions divide into two kinds. And the normal concept people have of a religion is a bit like a university course. You have an initiation ceremony, and then you have a way prescribed for you, rules and regulations that you have to follow. You've got various people to teach you, priests, imams, gurus, whatever. And then you come to a day of judgment and God assesses you against the background of his law. And if you have performed well enough, you get accepted. I I often ask people when they ask your question, I say, tell me what a religion is. And they usually say something like that, but I mustn't second guess them. Well, you see, that means that you're talking about a system of merit that you've got to merit God's acceptance. Now, where Christianity is utterly revolutionary is it is not a system of merit. It says that you can be accepted by God right now before you even start the journey, not because of your merit, that would be arrogant, but because of what Christ has done. So you've got a huge difference. And if you describe a religion as a system of teaching, that enables you by your own effort and perhaps with a bit of God's help to earn his acceptance, then Christianity just isn't a religion. It's something completely different. It's a personal relationship. And and therefore, there's such a vast difference 
And I like to explain that difference because I, I discovered that many people just think of Christianity the same way as they think of anything else. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I remember the, the story you told about, you know, your, your theoretical wife. Oh, if you cook well and you do this, yes. then oh, 40 years, it. maybe, maybe I'll accept you. So that, <laughs> that's that was a really in good the example. coronavirus book. That's exactly right. Yeah. And yeah. it's very easy to understand. That's exactly right. Yeah. What does your wife think of that? Was she like, oh, she loves it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Very, very cool. Well, very good. Uh, John, I get, we're close to the end of time. Okay. What's, what message do you have for listeners? You know, right here near the end of 2021, what's new that you want them to think about or what do you want them to consider that's always been? I think what I want to say is, is this. Perhaps you're tempted to give up on Christianity because of what you've seen. Experience you may have had politically, in terms of violence, in terms of the behavior of certain leaders, uh, professing leaders in Christian churches, and the sleaze and all those kind of things. I would say before you chuck it away, and I would understand it if you did, but before you chuck it away, give it another chance and go back to the New Testament itself and read what Jesus taught and judge it from what he had to say, not sadly from what the institutions and his followers who claim to base themselves on him have to say. And that's why I've written my book, to get back to the basics, because I see what you see. And I understand, for example, in North America, a survey was done of young people who led atheist groups in university. And they were asked, yes. why had they become atheists? Virtually all of them said, because of a bad experience of the church. So I sympathize with you. I grew up in a country where religion was a bad word, and it was the Christian religion was a bad word in both of its forms, Protestant and Catholic. But I came to see something profoundly different in my parents, that you could have a relationship with God through Christ that was vibrant, living, and was intellectually refreshing, and above all, gave you peace, solved the basic problem of human guilt, gave you power to live, and all those things that we'd all love to have. So don't give up on it until you've examined it carefully, and then make up your own mind. Yeah, that's excellent. And I started smiling as you were talking, because it sounds pretty good, you know, if you could have all those things. So yeah, that's makes sense. absolutely right. They do answer people's deep longing, and you can have them. Very good, John. It's been a great, great talk with you. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, for listeners, where should they start with your work? Because you have dozens of lectures and books. And Where do they start? Well, perhaps on the topics we've talked to tonight, the easiest book to start with is Can Science Explain Everything? I wrote that to be really accessible to people. If the issue of suffering is a big issue, that's a short book. And similarly, Where is God in a Coronavirus World is a very short book. It costs less than a cup of coffee. Oh, okay. And you can get that. So there are various things. But look at my website, johnlennox.org, and there are loads of talks, many of them in North America, in most of the big universities, and debates and discussions. And you, you just choose. There's a, there's a load of stuff out there that I've had put out in the hope that it will stimulate people like yourselves to think about these things and to come to your own satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Well, thank you, John. I hope you're able to continue 
you know, spreading your message for a long time to come. And I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed your manner of questioning. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.